It's October 16th, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. This week, the National Arts Centre Orchestra honours the 50th anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution with a program featuring the music of the two great Hungarian composers, Béla Bartók and Zoltán Kodály. Our concerts featured the two rhapsodies for violin and orchestra of Bartók and his towering masterpiece, the Concerto for Orchestra. The program concludes with the Salmus Hungaricus of Kodály and fittingly, our program begins with the tragic overture of Brahms, chosen by our guest conductor Franz Paul Decker to underline the stark tragedy of that 1956 uprising. Events marking this 50th anniversary are evident across our country and include an important international scholarly conference at the University of Ottawa, where guest speakers will address Canadian and international perspectives of that spontaneous and intensely troubling time. Here at the National Arts Centre, we're taking an important role in honouring the event. We have several concurrent displays in our lobby, including a 50 stories chronicling the Hungarian-Canadian experience with portraits by Tony Hauser. Also a companion exhibition presented by Library and Archives Canada in cooperation with Foreign Affairs, exploring Canada's reaction to the uprising that erupted in Budapest on October 23, 1956, when rioting students and workers rebelled against the Soviet-backed communist government. Musical events also include a complete cycle of the Bartok string quartets with the Orion Quartet, as well as our Hungarian Rhapsody programs this week on October 18th and 19th. And I should also mention screenings of several important films on the subject at the National Gallery and at the Canadian Museum of Civilization. Well, of course, nothing addresses the memory of a great historical event better than the voices of those who were there. So I'm very proud to introduce to my NACOcast listeners a very dear colleague and founding member of the National Arts Centre Orchestra, violinist Karoj Siladi. Karoj has come into our studio to talk with me about his memories of the revolution and also his love for the music of Béla Bartók. Karoj, welcome. Köszönöm szépen a meghívást. Which means? Which means thank you very much for the invitation. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. 1956, take me back to this time you were 14 years old. Well, when I think about it, I have tears in my eyes because I was 14 at that time, and my father was with a Russian-made submachine gun in, in the revolution. And we lived in one of the suburbs of Budapest, and he commuted so-called into Budapest for work. And a few days later, I found out that actually he was hiding his machine gun and he was joining the freedom fighters. And uh, <clears throat> he took part in a very, uh, well, how should I say? He took part in something that we always remember. He was a machinist and lathe operator and he had access to a cutting torch and he was also one of the people who were cutting down Joseph Stalin's statue. 
this was, of course, the occasion, of course, when uh, for the first few weeks there were jubilations because th things went very well. But later on, as we all know, things ties have turned against the Hungarians and uh, we had to leave our homeland. There had been many, many years of a very repressive uh, communist dictatorship puppet regime led by and things were very, very difficult. I've, I've astounded to read the condition of the economy there in post-war Hungary, of course. Uh, was, it was a terrible mess. The earning powers had, had dropped. Unemployment was high. You had hyperinflation. And, of course, you had purges, political purges. It was a very difficult time. But specifically, what happened on October 23rd in Budapest? Well, According to um, a recently published book that uh, I just got a hold of this summer, of, uh, written also by a 14-year-old boy, it was a daily diary. There were, um, ooh, how do you translate this? We call it röptzédula, which means like millions of little pieces of uh, paper that they spread around to the people, and of course mostly the youngsters and university students who were most interested in and rallying around for, for freedom. So the student demonstration started with a march towards the parliament buildings. Yes. And I understand that by the evening of October the 23rd, there was a crowd of 200,000. Correct. Which was just stunning. And they, they were cutting the communist coat of arms out of the Hungarian that, flag. Yeah, that's right. Where were you that day? Well, I was at home practicing the violin because <laughs> I, I knew as 14 year old, I know how to make Molotov cocktails, but my mother asked me to stay home and practice the violin. How did you learn to make Molotov cocktails? <laughs> Everybody knew that. <laughs> Gasoline, bottle, and rag, and whatnot. Well, that was probably one of the most effective ways if you could get close enough to uh, armored vehicles and tanks to throw it because uh, that was also the cheapest what uh, the youngsters could get a hold of. Well, we heard later on from different, you know, sources and neighbors that uh, there's a lot of shooting going on and it's getting more and more serious day by day. Your father was in Budapest? Well, he went in, as I say earlier, sort of went into work. And But uh, little we know that he had his machine gun with him. He didn't get hurt, luckily, uh, because he came home in the evening, so I, I figured everything was fine. But I'm sure my mother was on uh, sitting on needles every day. In addition to the tanks that had already come in the day after the, the, the first inklings of revolution, where, which had been beaten back after a few days, the huge invasion hit November 4th, and there was no stopping it at that point. Yeah, because um, very unfortunately, as, as, as you know, Chris, Hungary has um, a sort of a small mutual border with the Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union, and um, they came in by the hundreds, and we had no chance of defending ourselves what anymore. What do you remember of the of the Soviet forces? Did you see the, the columns? I, the I personally went in a few few times. Uh, that was when it was quieter, and, and mostly, of course, for violin lessons. <clears throat> and uh, I saw pretty well the same what this young boy in the book describes, I've seen total walls uh, shot down. I saw big, beautiful rugs down, antique furniture down in, in a rubble. And, uh, well, I saw tanks here and there, but uh, it was uh, very, very scary. You were terrified. I was terrified, and I was just sometimes hoping that nobody would think that it's a machine gun in my violin case, because <laughs> it was also just a small case, I think. I had only a half-size, a three-quarter-size violin that time. How did you manage to maintain focus on your music making during that period? Well, it was, it's just a love of music, you know. I mean, I, I, I started when I was five years old, and uh, 
I had to focus on that. Was music uh, something that was a consolation to the people at yes, that time? Yes, definitely. And uh, what kind of music? Well, I suppose uh, to the average public, anything from uh, folk music, gypsy music, anything to uh, try to distract themselves from what's going on in, in Budapest, all the, the terrible things that were happening. After the, after the November 4th uh, intervention of the Soviets, Things took a terrible, terrible turn for the worse, yes. and then the, there were months and months of purges and trials, and there executions were, by mm-hmm. the hundreds and thousands. And there had already been several thousand killed during the uprising. Yes, and then many Soviet troops killed also. When did your family make the decision to leave, and and how did it happen? This was extremely interesting because um, when my father decided, he always wanted to go west. But this was, of course, the opportunity that this is the moment. And uh, it was in November. I don't remember exactly the date, but um, we went towards a city called Chopron, which is a beautiful old city close to the Austrian-Hungarian border. And it happens on the other side is Eisenstadt, where the famous Esterhazy Palace and where Haydn lived for 40 years. So my parents said that we're going to visit my first violin teacher, Bela Lukács, who went there with his wife to uh, to totally retire, not not to teach anymore or anything to do except uh, live in peace. So uh, we went and visited him. And my godmother in the city, Rakoshaj, where we lived, she she told anybody that if they were asking about us, we just went to visit the violin teacher. And of course, from there, one one evening, uh, we went towards the border, and uh, this was most interesting because um, it was very sad for me because my mother and I didn't want to leave our homeland. My father, on the other hand, wanted to go west. And, of course, my sister was, was with me. She's two years younger, 12 years old. So we headed to the, <clears throat> towards the, excuse me, Hungarian border, Austrian border. And Hungarian uh, border, uh, what do you call a border guard, uh, saw us. And then he told us that it's not very dark and we come to this area where there were haystacks and whatnot, there were some other people there already, that we should hide there until it gets extremely dark, very dark, because not far from here are Russian patrols and they, Soviet patrols, and they may not be so kind. Mm -hmm. So we asked this Hungarian um, soldier, what what do we owe him? He said, well, give us sausages and uh, jewelry and watch, everything that we had on, which was very little, but my parents gave up everything. And then when it turned very dark, then he showed us a way. And it was like a, a, some cornfield when the corn, corn is already, you know, Chris, you know, when you're going dark, you don't see where you're stepping or anywhere. The corns were already cut. So uh, we, we treaded through there slowly and uh, looking into towards one dim light. And he said, when you see that dim light, that's the first little town in Austria. And that's when uh, the people in Austria were welcoming us into school, and that's the first time that I had my first orange and banana.
in the southern part of England, uh, in the Buxton area, there were some uh, beautiful small little villages like Tornipitz, Cisladon, where used to be army barracks, and that's where they put hundreds and hundreds of Hungarians up. And, um, you know, there was a big gathering and jubilation for all the, all the Hungarians there, and the, the head, head of that camp was a very nice British gentleman, and uh, somehow he sent a message to me, if at all I could bring the violin and play something for them at Christmas time, entertainment. So as sick as I was, I, took, I brought the violin and I played. Mm-hmm. And then he came up on stage and he had this most beautiful Swiss-made stopwatch. And after I played, he took it off his arm and he put it on mine and it was hanging there. And I have it ever since. Oh. And then from there, the last two weeks we were in Buxton, in the spa hotel. The spa hotel was also where Nikita Khrushchev stayed for a while. We were treated royally there where they had table tennis, pool, tables, everything, good food. And then we got the word that Canada is one of the countries that uh, we can fly to. And although my father said, well, that sounds pretty far, pretty north, probably pretty cold, but we're on the move, let's continue. And that's how we came uh, to Canada in the month of March, a very cold month. We came with a small aeroplane, uh, we landed in Reykjavik, then we landed in Moncton, and finally Toronto. The interesting in Reykjavik was, uh, when we landed, it was very cold, very high, big big snow. We were walking towards some building that we couldn't see. So finally, it's like going through a labyrinth, you know, and all of a sudden we go in this building, and there's some tables there, and they had chocolates, candies, and cigarettes. And, you know, Chris, at that time, uh, not just the candies, but the cigarettes were very expensive. And, my, well, my father, unfortunately, he smoked. And he used to pick up the cigarette butts in, in England just to smoke something. And when we saw this, you know, that was incredible. And we thought, well, we, we really have no money. We spoke little English because we learned the language in England. And then there was a soldier who stood behind one of the tables. And he said... In Hungarian, if you ask nice in Hungarian, you could take as much as you like free. We, then we found out that he was an American Hungarian, and that was actually an American base. That night that you left Hungary, you were part of a group of almost 200,000 refugees. Correct. Approximately 200,000, yes. It was a huge loss for Hungary, the people who left. How did it affect Hungary for the next generation, that loss of of that generation of people? It it affected quite a lot because, uh, well, it affected Hungary for quite a while because they knew they've lost a lot of talent. But what they, they can do, we were all looking for freedom. You know, and we wanted to uh, find a country, a place where we can be peaceful and uh, where the youngsters can be nurtured and uh, their their future is, is secure. You were just a kid trying to live your life. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I was hoping at first when I was younger to be a great virtuoso violinist, then, then I thought, oh, I'm just going to be a good chamber music player. And then eventually I said, well, if I can get a first-class orchestra in this country, I will be more than happy. And indeed, you were a founding member of of the first-class orchestra in this country. But you weren't the only Hungarian. No, um, Janos Csaba was our violist. uh, And when he was studying in the United States, he met his wife, Jerry Csaba, and she was also one of our first violinists. You didn't know him in the old country? No, I didn't know him, no. 
When you crossed through that cornfield that night, did you feel that you would never see your homeland again? Yes, and uh, well, that's why I had tears in my eyes because uh, you know it's your uh, place of birth, and you sometimes you you wonder if am I ever going to see my birthplace again. Talk to me now. You, you you visit almost every year now? Yes. Well, we had a nice little house built on Lake Balaton on the northern shore. Incidentally, that's uh, being the, one of the most beautiful lakes in, in Europe and the largest lake. Beethoven wrote his Moonlight Sonata there. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. And we have Roman remnants and Roman roads in some of the places. So uh, And so I, I wanted to build a, a home there, not to go and retire back there, but just so that when, when I go back to Hungary... Um, I don't want to be a burden uh, to my relatives because, uh, well, they live, they, they all have their own little home and television and whatnot. But I thought, well, there will be a day when I want to spend a little longer time there. And it's very central Europe, and, and I'd rather be in my own home and inviting them talk to as me, my guest. Talk to me now, when you go to, to Hungary now, what is the climate in the country? What is the, the sense of, of, of the, uh, the identity of the Hungarians politically? Every, every year when I, I drive back to Hungary from Germany or Austria, I notice there are highways that are fantastic. The government, I don't know from where, they spend millions of dollars. And uh, they, it's, Hungary's in, in one of the Euro countries now, and they're really wanting to climb up towards the standard of Austria and Germany, France, and so on. Bela Bartok. Hmm. Well, I could uh, say a lot about Mr. Bartok. It's an irreverence. I always feel that I'm insignificant when I'm playing his work. I know a lot of his works, and I always feel that I can't play it because uh, he was a giant in, uh, in, in the world of music. What is it about the music of Bartok that is so quintessentially Hungarian? Well, it's it's the the, the melodies uh, that because we all know that Bartok, like Kodai, they traveled uh, through Hungary, through uh, Transylvania, Slovakia, and the whole area there to collect, uh, you know, the the old traditional folk songs and music of the of the peasantry and so on. And he went around with hurdy gurdy and some kind of recording instruments. They, the, Bartok was, in fact, the world's first important ethnomusicologist. Eth- yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the connection? that you see between the Hungarian language and the music of Bartók? Oh, it's like, uh, what do we call it, foot-stamping kind of music. I mean, you, you find, uh, like, uh, listen to his, uh, his Romanian dances or many of his other works, you know, you could just feel like uh, getting up and, uh, and if you recognize some of the tunes in there right away, you would sing and dance right away. So no matter how complicated some of his uh, art music became, it still has its roots in those the folk melodies that he researched oh, yes. so oh, well. Oh, definitely. What I often hear in, in the music is the 
heavy first first beats. First beats, correct. You know that the the stress is on first beats, and if you have a two two syllable word, it takes the stress on the on the first the syllable. The first one, just like and, the and names. We, and we hear it in the music too. Yeah, like your name. We don't we, pronounce your name for me. Si, Siladi. Siladi. All right, Caroy. And yet here we we, we call you Siladi. Siladi. We, we call you in the orchestra Caroli Siladi, and you put up no, with it. This is very interesting because I, I I don't know, but I mean that's the 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 way the English language. I mean they can't say the soft year l y, so it's said l y. Yeah, and of course we have these very tricky double letter words like, like in Mr. Chabas, Janos Chaba C S, whereas mine is C S Z. Or sac Z S Jacques, and that's that's probably a little bit difficult. But remember, though, um, Hungarian is a, a small language, but it has forty-four letters, and it's phonetic, like the A, A, or U, or U, U. So it's almost impossible to make an error when you're writing the words. Interesting. You have the choice of your letters from forty-four. So Karai, what are you personally doing in to to honor Bartok this month? Okay, um, I'm, well, both my wife and I, Judith and I, were singing in the local Hungarian choir, and I'm tenor, she's alto, and uh, we're preparing uh, some pieces um, uh, f- for the anniversary, which will be held at Colton University on Sunday the 22nd at 4 o'clock. And besides the choir, um, I will be playing the first movement of the, of the serenade, the trio serenade by Zoltan Kudai for two violin and viola. And then that's where uh, Jerry Chaba, Janos Chaba, and myself will be performing the first movement. That was the serenade for two violins and viola, Opus 12 of Sultan Kodai in a very, very old recording. Karoy Zeladi, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us at NACOCAST. I know our audiences have, have admired and appreciated you on stage for many years here in Ottawa, and it's a great chance to hear your personal story. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. That's all for this edition of the NACOCAST. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. 
There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on NACOcast. Until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.